collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Hello, everyone. It is um, an honor and a joy to welcome today Audrey Jordan. Hi, Audrey. How are you today? Hi, Rita. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And is it doctor? Yes. It is Dr. Audrey Jordan. Please call me Audrey. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm really excited to be with you today. And um, kind of our listeners know we're in the process of creating a data series. And I originally reached out to you because you're a professor and evaluator. And so was thinking that you'd be perfect person in this data geek series. And in the course of getting ready for the radio show, we ended up really drawn in to a juicy conversation about partnerships and collaborations across race. And so we decided that we were going to break format and do that for today. And we'll probably do another radio show focusing on systems. And my guess, because what we do at Collective Power is emergent conversations, is that, you know, systems and power will still weave in between. But basically, this is just kind of you and I in conversation around something we've both thought a lot about, which is how do we collaborate across race in ways that's authentic and real and transformative for the work. So thank you for saying yes to this ride. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Could you start us off by just telling a story about yourself that would have the listeners just know you a little bit more, kind of 360 degrees. Well, I have this conversation often with my siblings and others. I am an oldest child in an African-American family, which means a couple things. (laughs) From the very start, I got a very clear message that I was supposed to be part of the talented 10th. And that meant pursuing education to its fullest and using that education for the benefit of us. And that translated to how I showed up in my family as an oldest child. It translated to how I showed up in any engagement with other people. I am a responsible person. I take my duties seriously. I am a nurturer. I am a good finder. I am a power builder. It just comes along with being the oldest and taking this charge to be part of the Talented Tent seriously. And for those who may not know the reference to the Talented Tent, could you tell us a little bit about that? Of course, W.E.B. Du Bois spoke about the burden, really, and the, the joy and the privilege it is for people who are in the Black race, African Americans who have talent and drive to not forget that they take on the obligation to make sure as they climb, they bring people with them. Randall Robinson said it well with a quote that actually guides my life. It's first you got to get in the room and then you got to remember why you're there. For the people, for the cause, for us. Yeah. 
One of the things that like always resonates for me is that when I was in school, because I have a PhD in African American studies, there was often this conversation about how elitist Du Bois came across as because of the talented tenth. And then I remember this groundbreaking moment in which the professor said, he said tenth, like one out of ten people. He didn't say ten people. Because what we have now is like, there are so many African Americans in key roles, but they're so tokenized because often, you know, we're talking about maybe, I don't know, 30, 50, 100 people nationwide that have power versus what Du Bois was saying was 10th. So one out of 10. I haven't figured out the numbers right now. But if you look at what population of African Americans is, the 10th of the population is a much, much higher percentage than than what we think of as the kind of academics or people who have more formal power. I'm glad you pointed all that out, Rita, because by those calculations, and I'm doing a rough back of the envelope or napkin estimate, but if we said there were 400 million people in the United States and we took a tenth of that, which we know is a conservative estimate of how many African-Americans are, it's more like 12, 13 percent. Then we're talking about 40 million people. And you do the math and it's very clear to see there are not 40 million African-Americans in powerful positions in this country. (laughs) Nowhere close to it. Now, in my humble opinion, the country would be so much better off if there were, especially Black women, but we'll get to that, I'm sure. But 40 million of our most powerful people ought to be Black folks. Do we even have 40,000? So I'm just going to leave it there. Yep. I also did want to speak to the idea of the elitist notion that W.E.B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington, let's say, who believed in our hard work and, you know, the sort of uh, respectable Black folks kind of thing. I really love the way you phrased that 10th versus 10 and the idea that we're not talking about an A-list of Black people. (laughs) Although you wouldn't have much argument with me that far too many Black people who have earned power and privilege use it for their own personal pursuits. However, I believe what W.E.B. Du Bois was talking about and he exemplified for the most part (laughs) in his life is a commitment to the race, to people, not for his own personal pursuit. And that is the way that I mean it. I think it's uh, also interesting as we talk about this, my experience. I remember when you and I talked, you talked about identifying a pivotal moment in my life where transformation happened for me. That is a question you ask most of the people who come onto the podcast with you. And I thought about it, and I do have a moment which kind of speaks to this point, actually. As I was in graduate school back in Richmond, Virginia, at Virginia Commonwealth University, pursuing my third degree, (laughs) my PhD in social policy and social work, I was also a community evaluator in Richmond, Virginia, in the East District of Richmond, learning with the residents who lived there and helping them to identify their own research questions and research projects. And one such project was a project I was working with some grandmothers who lived in a neighborhood in the East District of Richmond who were taking care of their children's children because their children were either incarcerated on drugs or just struggling. And so the grandmothers had responsibility for their grandchildren. But at the time, they were not eligible to get the benefits that parents might get to take care of their children. And they were 
wanting to impress upon the Richmond Public School District that it would be really, really important to find a way to support these grandmothers to do a good job of supporting their grandchildren. And they needed help to do that. So we were putting together a questionnaire and we were going to support them to go door to door and talk with their neighbors. And they wanted to make sure that the questions that they asked and answered would provide the data that they needed to be able to make the case that they knew was true, but that they would be able to, at some point, talk to the school district with data to support the need to invest in grandparents. Well, one bright sunny day in Richmond, I was in one of these really fun sessions with these grandmothers and my dissertation committee chair walked in. She also was my boss at the survey and evaluation research lab. And I did not expect to see her. It was one of those moments, Reed, I don't know if you've had them, but I was very clear that I had one foot in one world and one foot in another. Meaning I was so committed to making sure that the questions and the questionnaire fit what the grandmothers needed. And I was also aware that, uh-oh, my dissertation chair is coming here. My boss is coming here. I work at the Survey and Evaluation Research Lab. These questions better fit some kind of standard or she's going to think, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? So I was paralyzed for a minute. And this wonderful community leader named Miss Annie Giles, who was at the time probably in her 70s, no teeth in her mouth, but one of the wisest women I ever knew, noticed right away that I was petrified, paralyzed. <laughs> And she looked at my dissertation chair and she said, um, now you don't come in here and made Audrey nervous. What did you do that for? And my dissertation chair just kind of looked and was like, uh, and she said, well, let me tell you something. You may need to be questioning whether Audrey knows what she's doing, but we don't question that. We know Audrey knows what she's doing, but you know what's more important than that? We know Audrey cares about us, about what's happening to us. And so as long as we know she cares, we know she knows what she's doing. And that's why Audrey can come into our neighborhood and do this kind of work with us. So as long as we know you care, we don't care how much you know. And I've seen that quotation taken on by other people, uh, something along the lines of, I need to know how much you care before I care how much you know or something like that. But I can tell you in my real life that happened. And the good news is that my dissertation chair responded with great humor and appreciation and said, look, I'm here to learn. And I know Audrey knows what she's doing. So please proceed. Oh, what a great answer. <laughs> and I personally felt in that moment, wow, what is important to me? What's important to me is being a vessel, using my power and privilege to support the voice, the power of others. It's not to demonstrate how smart I am or how much I know or having power over people. That was a crystallizing moment for me. I love that, Audrey. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious, was your dissertation chair white or black? Here's a white Jewish woman who I greatly admire. Actually, she wasn't my chair. She was just on my committee, as I'm remembering. You know how you recall things differently. Yeah. Her name was Judy Bradford, an amazing lesbian woman who's an advocate for um, HIV prevention. And um, I learned so much from her, but that's who she was. I asked you to like kind of dip into the conversation we said we'd have today. We may have another one, but one of the things I highlight, I say talk about a lot that I think your story says so beautifully 
is that I think one of the huge gaps between white folk and black folk, and we may just want to stick to white women and black women in the context of this conversation, since it's you and I, is that trust, like among white folk, trust is earned through what you know. And in my experience, folks of color and in particular African-Americans instead navigate the world at the feeling level. So I decide based on what I feel when I'm in your presence, whether you're trustworthy or not. So I'll put out a, a story of me. So thinking 2006, just finished my PhD, went to a brunch with a friend of mine who's an African-American elder male who always respected me deeply for my mind and my heart, but invites me to a brunch with a group of other folks of color. And I go like on a rampage about everything like that I know as a white woman in the department because I know I'm being checked out, right? I go on this like verbal rampage basically. And after I do that, I can tell the conversation dies, right? Now, part of why I do rampages is that I was raised half of my life in Southern Italy, and that's part of how Italians communicate. But we expect people to talk over you and interrupt you. And in America, when that doesn't happen and the conversation goes dead, you know that you didn't speak into the room, but you basically were doing your own thing. So there's very different communication styles in the two countries, right? But I remember talking with a woman who to me is like a second mother, Yvonne, who is my Reiki teacher and who is now a 90 year old African-American woman. Actually, she would say black woman. She hates the term African-American. And she says to me, well, why did you talk all that time? And I said, well, I knew I had to earn their trust. And she said, but you did what you thought they needed to hear to earn their trust that wasn't actually what they needed. And I didn't even continue the conversation with her because she went so over my head. It wasn't until years later that I realized, yeah, there's a feel. There's a feel of how a white person who navigates the work shows up with in the room. And I think part of it is you guys having to survive what you survived that you had to learn how to detect our feelings before they got out of hand, right? So you had to learn how to detect the slightest shift in us. Mm. Mm. Wow. And we don't have that. I think most white folk don't, like we have to cultivate it. Mm -hmm. I have it now, like after, I don't know, I started Reiki in 2002. I started practicing Reiki, so I have it now. Like I can sense stuff mm. and I've always had it to some extent being an empath, but a lot of white people don't have that. Mm. They don't actually know how to walk in a room and feel the vibe of the room. So we assume that our vibe is the vibe of the room. Mm. Yeah, Rita, I think there's definitely something to your analysis. Um, clearly black folks people who are oppressed have to know the oppressor for survival, just to be able to avoid harm and destruction. You got to be vigilant. Unfortunately, that's not healthy. And we know through medical science that stress can be somaticized and might partially explain why all the indicators of well-being show that people of color on the bad end of the stick when it comes to health. The thing I would say though, Rita, is not to disagree with you, but for me, there's just this whole other level. You say feeling, we've got to tap into our feelings. Yeah, I think we value relationships. We value the relational much more than we value expertise. I think expertise is clearly important and I'm proud I have it. And I know my family is proud as heck that I do. And 
I need to lean into that more because I'm taught to be very humble about that. And I am humble about it, but sometimes to a fault. But this relational piece, to me, it's about connection. It's about spirit, heart, connection, value, as much if not more than intellectual connection. And um, for me, it has been a journey of reconnecting myself to that essence and not allowing what I've learned in white dominant culture to be credentialed with my expertise and all of the habits of detachment I learned. You know, as a professional, you don't do transference and counter-transference. You don't show your emotions, your objective, as if there is such a thing. That's what being a professional and an expert is about. And I've had to learn to detach myself from that. Now, I always was more of a tacit knowledge kind of person. What is my intuition? What is my spirit? What is my gut telling me? But I had to learn how to revive that, to inspire that, because I was taught in all of my education and professional training to beat that back somehow, to put it in a box somewhere, to pretend like my head, my intellect was the most important of that. So I don't know if you, that resonates with you. It does. And I think that's why those authentic collaborations get so tough. Mm -hmm. So for the past 10 years, I've only worked in collaboration with folks of color on nearly every project. And I feel like I've just like learned a lot. And one of the things that's most important is that the relationship at the front of the room creates the dynamic at the back of the room, right? Which is what you're saying, right? Like the relationship is everything. So part of why so many partnerships where there's like a token person of color that doesn't have as much power, doesn't have kind of equitable stand, doesn't actually work is because Resma talks about how we're not settled in our bodies with each other, right? Unless there's that trust, you're like the two people at the front of the room, if you're facilitating, for instance, like if I don't trust you to the point that I can lean on you and our relationship isn't solid, then whatever's in the way between me and you is gonna show up in the room, right? Mm. And it's an energy. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel really blessed that in the past 10 years, there have been like two to three people that I've been able to partner with repeatedly so we could build that kind of trust. But it's not built in the space of a project. Mm -hmm. And the people I work with that I've worked on one project with, you know, it's like we have baby trust. Mm hmm. And there's a place that the depth of trust can take a group that the baby trust can't. Mm-hmm. And as a white person in the work who's been constantly imbued with, you're not enough unless you do everything perfect. Mm. And of course, you never do everything perfect. So you're never enough is basically the message I received. Mm-hmm. Even in my collaborations, I often find myself in that space where like, it's just like, can I just tell you what's on my mind right now? So I like, sometimes in the preparation, it's really an opportunity for me to say all the things about myself that I know aren't true, but that are taking up space in my head. Mm. Well, I can clearly see resonance with what I was saying. And um, let's unpack this a little bit, Rita, because I experienced my engagements with white women 
as a tug of war over control. And I'm not trying to be in control. As a matter of fact, emergence, when Adrian Marie Brown came out and named this and operationalized in some ways, the value of being comfortable with emergence. It really spoke to my heart because that is a comfortable place for me. But I notice it's not a comfortable place at all for most white people and white women in particular that I've worked with. It's like I constantly feel this tension around that person or those women needing to control the situation, needing to have predictability and structure. And man, I feel like I'm going to scream in so many of these encounters. And it's like, what the hell is that about? And I understand from Tema Okun's work, white dominant culture requires these things managing people as if you can manage people rather than lead, perfection, effectiveness, structure, all these things that are about boxing people in and and being able to control things. And I'm going to always be in a fight about that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be strategic. We shouldn't lay down good plans. We shouldn't agree on goals. We shouldn't actually identify ways we're going to know and be accountable to each other around the commitments we make. Absolutely, those things are important. But I don't need to control that. I just need to get consensus and agreement. And then we monitor each other in reciprocal exchange to make sure we're going where we say we're going. That's enough structure for me, you know? Oh my God, yes, yes. There's just so many things, right? Like there's my body is firing, my brain is firing, like there's all. And I promised you in this conversation that I really wanted to stay in my heart and in my body and my belly. So I'm like pausing the brain firing. I think about the work as different levels, right? So there's the individual level, then there's the team level, and then there's the system level. And Unit mentioned all of them. So in the spirit of being authentic, I think we haven't, Resma's work touched on it, but we haven't begun to really unpack what racism did to us. Part of why I went on this journey is because when I saw Reuben Stacy's lynching picture and I saw that smirk on that white girl's face, I said to myself, what did we do to her? What did we do to break her? Where the point where she at seven years old sees a hanging, burned body and smirks and is staring right at it, right? She's not looking away. So at 10, my uncle died and we had just moved to Italy. And I was horrified to discover that in Italy, the psalm is held in the house for 24 hours so that everyone can come and grieve and mourn. And I was terrified by the idea of looking at my uncle's dead body. And that was just peacefully lying in a bed under probably my aunt's best set of, you know, embroidered sheets because <laughs> we're in Southern Italy. What broke in this little girl? to be able to watch. And that's been a quest for me. And so part of our obsession with control, I think is that something broke in us for us to be able to uphold the inhumanity, the trauma, the pain, the violence 
repeatedly over hundreds of years. Like something was done to us for us to uphold that. And I think part of it, a big part of it, is this numbing what we feel and then control becomes the illusion that pacifies the anxiety that we are constantly trying to keep in check. I think the amount of rage and grief that we are carrying as white women is something we have yet to face. And we were trained to shift that towards control because in the plantation narrative, we were the supervisors of the enslaved. On the plantation in the United States, it was up to the white woman of the house to decide when an enslaved African was sick, whether they were sick enough to call the so-called slave healer or if they needed to sort it out themselves mainly because the slave healers were the old school medicine women who also knew poison, right? So having a slave healer on the plantation was a risk. And the white woman's job was to establish if the risk was high enough to the property, because we were seeing enslaved folk not as people, but as property. Basically, is there a risk that I'm gonna lose you? And then I'll run the risk of having someone who could kill me on the plantation. Or are you good enough that you can just suffer it off and sweat it out? That was our role. That's why that white women's tears thing is so profound because we can cry and we can activate a whole dynamic of protection all around because white men believe they're protecting us. They believe that in their core, that all this mess is to protect their women. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Charlemagne the God says, let's unpack this. There's so much in what you said that, you know, I'd like to respond to. I get it. I see what you're saying in terms of the harm I don't know, harm seems like too minor a word. The psychological trauma that's passed down through generations of white women in that role that you described. And I couldn't help but think of the schizophrenia or how on the one hand, white women would be in the position to make those kinds of judgments. And on the other hand, black women were the keepers of the house and suckled white babies at their breasts. And how in your mind do you, on the one hand, see people as property and folks to make decisions over in one way, as you say, the supervisor of the plantation, but on the other, see Black women as the nurturers to the point where they're breastfeeding white babies and not see the humanity there. You got to have some kind of some schizophrenia, something going on in your head to do that. And then I think of black folks navigating that craziness. It kind of goes back to your point about how you have to develop some kind of supernatural tacit knowledge, some feel, some real understanding of these oppressors (laughs) so that you can survive. And so you and I are gonna put our gaze on white women, black women, both at various times. But to me, it gets right back to the same origin point. And that's the the white patriarchy shrouded in Christianity. That's a very important piece because That was the ultimate authority. God said, this is our role (laughs) to have dominion over the earth and apparently over black people too. And the break of women with our bodies, right? Like at that point, our bodies went from being sacred and magical 
Yes. Honored yes. in matriarchy to being, you know, dirty and needing to be dominated and weak. And right. So there's just this huge paradigm shift. Absolutely. And uh, I'm reminded, I recently read one of the best books I've read in a long time, Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed. And there's this amazing line in it. I'm going to screw it up, but it says there is history and there is mythology. And the narrative is what favors one over the other. And that is an understanding of how the narrative that has been created by white men primarily to justify their supreme role over everyone else or everything else in their mind is how history has been written. But it's based on total mythology, total mythology. And we bought into it, right? And like we, we all bought into it because the narrative, somehow yeah. there was just the knowledge that if we can shape this narrative and tell the story in a way that lifts up the mythology, and buries the true history, then we've controlled the story, right? And we all bought in. You're exactly right. Women, Black women, all of us have bought in and held it up over time. And what I find is that I'm just in this constant struggle as a sentient person with a heart and spirit to reject that. And so for me, it helps me make sense of the whole CRT debate. It helps me make sense of the disinformation and misinformation campaign, the rise of authoritarianism now, because we're in a moment in time when women, when Black folks and other oppressed groups are saying, we don't buy the narrative anymore. We just don't. And we're going to tell our own stories. And we're and wow, is the backlash furious. And we're going to create collectives where our own norms yeah. are, right? Like there's this piece of, um, uh, I don't remember her name right now, but she calls it islands of sanity. Like people are intentionally creating islands of sanity, which is also what generative somatics calls the prefigurative work or um, in emergent strategy, she calls the internal work. Right. Like there are more and more collectives saying, no, we're going to create new norms for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something you said and then move a little forward. And sure. I love that you said the schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And I just want to add, it's not in our minds, it's in our bodies. Please say more about that so I can understand. So I, I mentioned to you that I was on this quest for decades of like, how could we do so much harm? How could white people do so much harm? And for decades, I read every book I could put my hand on, on every injustice out there. And I just got a longer inventory, but never got the answer to the question. When I started doing Reiki and energy work, I started understanding it's the way it's inside our bodies. Life always moves towards balance. So our bodies in one of the chakra systems, the most common one, the Hindu one, we say there are seven chakras. There are other chakra systems that see others. But basically the way the body balances out is that if you shut down one or one is blocked, the body will try to compensate by bringing more energy to the next one and less to the other one because it's trying to compensate for the excess. So our centers of love are our hearts, which is the love for others, and the womb or the second chakra, which is love of self. So if you shut down the love of self, you access the solar plexus, which is the site of control. Mm. Also, tightens up the heart. Mm. And you got the control freaks we were talking about. Mm. You know, I'm a recovering one myself. Like, I'm not saying I've got the whole sorted out, right? 
Like when my anxiety flares up, I still want to move towards control. So I, I'm just kind of laying out, not by the wisdom of my experience, but the depths of my experience. That war is in our bodies, right? And it shows up in our partnerships. Wow. You just brought into much stronger relief the whole abortion battle for me. I mean, the fact that the womb is the center for ourself and this battle to actually control the self of women. We've allowed these people to take terminology, speaking of narrative, right to life, people. <laughs> That's not a right to life. That's a, we're going to take control of yourself. Your womb is not yours. Your womb is something the state will control. Wow. I'm just sitting with that for a second. Mm. How is it that so many women are a part of that movement? Women mostly. Yeah, it's (laughs) what you were talking about before, right? Like, I think we have a very conflictual relationship with our productivity because of patriarchy has said we're weak because of it. Mm. Mm. I mean, I can think of many years in which I thought of the women of my family who had children as weak. And then I had to kind of get on the other side of 40 to realize what magic there was in their tenderness. Mm. Mm -hmm. I believed it, right? I believed the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I stand behind a woman's right to choose. And I think that's another area in which, like having known women who went through it and it became pivotal moments in their lives that got really hard for most of them that I know to forgive themselves over. I don't think we're talking about the trauma it leaves behind. Not at all. So I feel like in this conversation, and I'm not sure if it's just the whiteness in my brain parking up and say, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you know, whatever the, the critic, right, that shows up. But I'm not sure that in this conversation, there's been like a balance, right? So I'm curious in thinking about this aspect of collaboration. And so you mentioned the importance of kind of letting go and emergence, and you mentioned the importance of relationship, right? What else are white women missing? Or what else do you want to speak to in terms of like what is needed? Well, I would like us to, to go right at the point of betrayal that I know I felt as a Black woman in collaboration with white women, and that I hear voiced by many Black women, and that's white women will betray you. You know, you're in together, you're fighting for something together, and then once they've succeeded to getting their power, their voice, you're abandoned because they got what they needed. They were never in it for you, for us to have our comeuppance. It was using us to get further along. You know, it reminds me of why Alice Walker claimed the term womanism instead of feminism. And and the suffragettes who had to get at the back of the line and and didn't get their right to vote when white women got their right. It's just you know, time and time. So how do I make it real for me? Wow. Just the experiences I've had where even just in this work, I'm a race equity trainer, as I mentioned to you when we talk. And I can predict where it's all going to break down. And, you know, we agree that we're going to enter these conversations with honesty and vulnerability And we're going to own our own stuff and we're going to work out things together. And invariably, there's a moment where 
it gets too uncomfortable for white women. And we start hearing about, I feel like I'm being attacked. I feel like you're not lifting up the importance of gender equity as much as race equity. I feel like Black people are still talking about slavery and slavery was a long time ago. I mean, just a regression from all of the things that we thought we talked about and agreed upon. And here we are regressing back into these, I'm as oppressed as you are and what about me? And oh my God, it's the centering of white women in the quest for racial justice. It's such a betrayal. It's such a disappointment so many times. I feel like all I can say is yes, and I'm sorry, it sucks. Well, <laughs> Rita, bless your heart. Let me, let me continue this story because- I've been through it. Because we yeah, do it to white people, I've been through it too. Yeah. Like there was a pivotal moment in our conversation when you said, I know only two or three white women who I would trust to have my back. And I've been thinking about that since we talked two days ago. And I've been like, how many do I have? <laughs> yeah. There are more folks of color who I trust to have my back. Mm-hmm. The white folks I trust to have my back are my healers. Mm. Like, are the people who I go for my healing. Mm -hmm. And thank God there are a couple white ones, because, you know, at some point, <laughs> black therapist, black church, you know, black academic department, like, I needed to find healing with my white folks, right? Like, that's been my journey is coming back to white folks and Luckily, with all the, you know, African-American elders who's like, you're ready, go, get out of here. It's, here's where I landed. And what I'm about to say is really provocative, and I'm sure it'll evolve, but it's where I am now. I think there's something to the fact that, like, my healers are the only ones, like, if they told me jump off a boat, I would jump because I know that they know who they are. And so my question is, how can we have your back if we don't have ours? Not that you don't deserve it, of course you do. But unless we engage in a profound journey of transformation where we know how to say, I can give you my all now, and not today, <laughs> like the way some people like to, not today, Satan. Like, I don't have it for you today. Because it's not every day that I can have everybody's back, right? And I get that I don't know what it's like to be Black in America, right? So I get that that lands for you in a way that's different than how it lands for me. Mm. That's why I can just say, Yes, and I'm sorry it sucks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think your standard is a beautiful one to work towards as we think about our collectives and what do we want, right? Yeah, I want that. I want the Black folks in my life to know that if I say something to them, they can trust. I think all white people want that. But the truth is, if we haven't done enough of our inner knowing, we're not going to have it. And it's been hard to hear some of my mentors say, no, not yet. Like, you haven't healed enough of you yet. Like, that's not an easy thing to hear for a perfectionist, right? Mm -hmm. We have to do that journey for us. Mm -hmm. And then we can give it. And unfortunately, I would argue that the conversations about white fragility and the just conversations about anti-racism won't go there. We right. were taught white fragility. We have to heal it. We can't talk people out of white fragility. Right. Well, Rita, I'll say what you said was not provocative to me. 
I think it was very insightful and very vulnerable and very felt very truthful to me. The one thing that I disagree with that you said is that most white people want that kind of trust. I don't believe that. And maybe that's sad. Maybe that's really my own stuff that I got to work through. But my experience in my soon to be 65 years is, no, I don't think most white people want that kind of equilibrium, (laughs) that kind of opportunity for mutual respectful trust. I think white supremacy is a hell of a drug. And I just want to clarify too, I didn't mean just white women when I said I could probably on my one hand identify three, four people. And maybe two of them are white women and two of them are white men that I would trust enough to go deeper, to have a more authentic, mutual, reciprocal relationship with and believe that they are interested in the same. That's pretty sad. Uh, You know, I don't know if that's a statement about my lack of trust and my trust issues or if that's a verifiable fact for me, but that's where I am right now. And I believe that basically, are you willing to use your privilege to step back and make space for other people to gain privilege and power or not? I'm typically not a this or that person, but that's one of those places for me that I look for when I'm in relationship with people. And when I feel that kind of vulnerability and that kind of willingness and openness. I cherish that as a very rare thing indeed with a white person. So um, just a small point of clarification. What I was thinking of is people who I can trust to have my back. Uh Uh-huh. Kind of what I thought and I heard your clarification. Yeah. Because I think trusting to have my back is very different than trusting to engage in a process together to go deeper, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, if we were to think of them as an evolution of things, I see what you just said is a little bit earlier than that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot about trust that is a personal journey, mm-hmm. right? The more I trust myself, the more I can trust others because I trust myself to face and overcome the challenges that come. Mm-hmm. Right? Like trusting you doesn't mean that you have to be a p- perfect human being that says the perfect things at this perfect time, mm-hmm. which I think in white progressive culture often turns into that. Like trust means that you've read all the right books, you know what to say, when to say it, right? Which is another bit of that control, please, right? Absolutely controllable like the books that i read and the words that i read and what i say that has to be controllable so that i can check the list on everything i did right i also want to say something to the making space Mm -hmm. because i'm pushing back on you a little bit and i want to do this respectfully because i know that there's a wealth of experience in where you're coming from And what I've learned and part of what I've learned in the past 10 years in my collaborations is that we all start at different levels of knowledge and expertise and so on and so forth. So yes, I can take a step back for another person to have more space. What I see that is most powerful and I've seen in very few places are two like really big human beings showing up both as huge human beings and are able to dance with it at the same time, right? Like that I can show up fully as who I am and you can show up fully as who you are, which would be my hope for this conversation. Like to me, you're a giant that shows up fully like, right? And I can also mark myself and say, you know, Rita, you know, you're Italian, you know, you speak in, you know, five minute increments. So like <laughs> yourself and say, like, I did a half conversation, like, 
was it imbalanced on my side because I got particularly passionate, right? And I can take that moment. So I think there's a balance there though. And, it, and sometimes in progressive culture, I think it starts becoming this, no, white people need to shut up and like stand behind the wall. And that's not healthy either because that strengthens the numbing. And then we go off the loose end because the control piece starts and then we want to see a scene, right? And then the little kid starts running the show. And, and so I think what I would like to see and what I envision for my partnerships are like, how can we both show up as the huge human beings that we are? in a way that neither of us overshadows the other, but the people we work with get the fullness of how brilliant we are. Well, speaking aspirationally, I agree with you. I aspire to a time where that is so. I think where we might be missing each other is, I don't see that that time is now. Equity is an issue. And what do we do about the fact that there's so much catching up, there's so much healing and truth and reconciliation that has to happen so that we can be at a point of equilibrium? Now, I'm very clear that relative to most Black folks, I'm very privileged. And so it's why this question of reparations or even affirmative action is challenging because some folks have been able to be a part of the talented tent and are in a position to have some power and to make space for others. They have to see that that's a purpose. And, and many, many people haven't even been in the door, haven't even been, don't even see the door as an option to be in that room that Randall Robinson described. So what do we do about the fact that so many haven't even had access to the opportunity so that conversations about equilibrium or equity mean anything? You know what I mean? So with you and me, I think we could get there to a point where the two of us show up in all of our fabulousness <laughs> and do that dance you talked about. And that when I've been able to be in those circumstances, it is a beautiful thing. But I am telling you, Rita, I can count on three fingers in a lifetime of this work and in collaboration where I felt glimpses of that. Maybe because I'm still doing the catch up, but more often my read of it is that that other person isn't ready to see me as a true equal or to trust me to be. Maybe to see me, but not to trust me. Audrey, it was a pleasure talking to you. Do you have any last thoughts? I regretfully close this conversation. Do well, you have I, any thoughts and how can people get in touch with you? Well, I feel like the part of the conversation that I would have liked us to spend a little more time with is, so when do we feel it's working and how do we know so we can do more of that? And I think we could both speak to that, but for another time, because I am a hopeful person. And as I told you, there have been glimpses and moments and stuff to make me know that I'm not just dreaming, you know? Well, but how anyway. about let's play a game? Let's play a game. Sure. So it's like my facilitator hat, right? Yep. Like, let's just popcorn it. Like one word back and forth, like two minutes. How do you know it's working? Willingness to be vulnerable. I mean, to really, really be vulnerable. When the room comes first. 
right? Like the group comes, the group we're serving comes before our personal needs to be seen, heard, whatever. Indeed. When power is power with, and it's really clear that no one is fighting to control and manage people, but to empower people and lead people and truly believe that something new and exciting and necessary will be created through our interaction, that I don't have to have the answer. When power is power among and functions like music, right? Like it expands because we all have it together. Yes. When I truly see the contribution someone else is making that I can't make, and I value that because I know I need it. And when I see that they see that from me as well, the missing when, piece. When I can say that I screwed up, but <laughs> I still have gifts. When we can laugh and there's joy in the space and people aren't feeling persecuted, but possibility is all in the air. When for little stretches of times, even sometimes a second or two, we're just human to human and race ceases to exist. I think we can stop right there. I'm going to add when my heart feels the way it does right now. Very oh, beautiful. yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed, indeed. That was beautiful. Thank you for being on the show, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Um, it was really wonderful. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.